Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. This is one in a series of webcasts, podcasts that we do on food policy and obesity. And I welcome you to go to our website at www.yalerudcenter.org to look at a list of the other podcasts. I'm delighted today to welcome Dr. David Frisbald. He is a Robert Wood Johnson Scholar in Health Policy Research at the University of Michigan, and in the fall will be joining the Department of Economics at Emory University in the faculty position. He has a PhD in economics from Vanderbilt University and has done very interesting work on the economic impact of uh, various methods that might be used to reduce obesity, particularly some in, uh, fascinating new data on the impact of the Head Start program, and then he's also thought about food taxes as a possibility. So David, welcome. Thank to, you very much for having me. To our webcast. Let's start with the work you've done on Head Start. Sure. Um, people think of Head Start as an educational enrichment program, and it certainly is that, but you've thought about the health impacts of Head Start as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, Head, Head Start's commonly uh, thought of as, as primarily an education program, but um, in order to um, um, I improve the educational um, readiness, the school readiness of children, it offers a variety of services that include not only education and literacy-based services, but also nutrition and health services. Um, so one of the things that I've been focusing on is what are the health outcomes of the program? And I've been particularly focused on uh, obesity. Um, now, as I understand, back in the early days of Head Start, there was great concern about malnutrition yes. being the problem with the children. And there was concern that the children wouldn't be able to learn unless they were adequately nourished. So a food component got inserted into Head Start. Am I correct about yes, that? Yes, and, and that was actually one of the um, benefits, I think, of including pediatricians in the uh, committee that that began the Head Start program. Um, okay. But now the, the focus, or at least the focus that I've been looking at, is not really the concern about undernourishment, but is uh, how is Head Start related to obesity? Uh, so I've been um, trying to get a sense of does participating in the program have an impact on obesity and, and also um, differences within the program. So one of the things that's been going on since the early 90s is that Head Start has greatly expanded. Um, it's expanded not only in the number of children that attend, but also in the intensity through which children attend. So the um, percent of children that attend for a full day has greatly increased. Um, so that Head Start has changed from being primarily a full a half day program to uh, now it's pretty evenly mixed between half day and full day. So I've been doing a lot recently with trying to get a sense of what is the impact of, of this expansion. Um, and so what, what's the impact of attending full day compared to half day um, on, on obesity? Okay. And now there's a couple of reasons why um, it might be the case that, that attending Head Start for longer would have an impact. Um, one, it does provide uh, more exercise opportunities in the program. Um, it also provides um, a, a greater number of meals um, throughout the program. So basically what, what you have is you have a situation where in the program children are provided with um, a, a greater number of healthier meals, but at the same time 
it's, it's a more structured environment that uh, also restricts the opportunities for um, uh, uh, um, greater... Well, like eating fast food would be an example. Sure. If kids were just out there on their own. Um, okay. So, so it, it would actually... What I'm finding is it actually restricts the number of calories consumed throughout the day. Okay. Um, you know, and I'd like to get in a minute to the data you have, which I think are very impressive. But before we do that, there s several of our previous guests have talked about the links between poverty and obesity and why that might exist. And intuitively, you'd think that poverty would be associated with undernutrition because people wouldn't have enough money to buy foods. But people have talked about why poverty might be linked to obesity. And I appreciate your opinion on this. But my understanding is that people have hypothesized that it's a combination of the type of food that people are driven to because of their uh, lack of financial resources, driven to calorie-dense prepackaged foods that, that uh, tend to be lower in cost than healthier foods. And then also access becomes an issue because of people having to rely on corner markets and bodegas and things like that. And those institutions have trouble uh, carrying lots of fruits and vegetables and things. So is am yeah, I no, right, I think right so far? I think that's about right. Um, okay. So so basically, um, access does become an issue, um, and 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 that's also something that that I believe is, is um, going on in the background um, w with some of the Head Start uh, research that I've been doing. So basically, the um, neighborhoods that. Um, the, the children are living in when they're uh, the Head Start children are living in uh, also have less access to um, a variety of healthier options. Okay, so to link uh, up <clears throat> the two issues we're talking about, economics and, and disadvantage and food and Head Start, you Head Start primarily provides services for socially and financially disadvantaged children. Yes, um, so at least 90% of the children are required to uh, be children from families with incomes below the poverty uh, line. Okay, and so those are the children who would be living in environments where healthy food may be less available than might yes. ordinarily be the case. Uh, the cost of it might be more. Um, and then, of course, they're driven by just the raw price of foods because they don't have as much money. Certainly. They might be driven to the more calorie-dense foods. And so Head Start has a wonderful opportunity in that regard, doesn't it, In in both in you know, removing children part of the day from the environment where they might be f more exposed to those kinds of foods, but then also providing them healthy meals. Yes, and, and I think that that combination is actually what's um, driving at least the differences that we see between uh, full day and half day. Okay. Um, so I'm going to hold our audience in suspense with your actual data. <laughs> Great. Because I want to get back to that in a minute. But before we do, what, what does Head Start actually do with respect to food? What kind of foods do kids get in Head Start? Um, so what, what basically tends to happen is that um, if you attend for half day, um, you are provided with... Um, foods that, that meet uh, at least one half of the recommended daily allowance of vitamins, minerals, and nutrients. Now this actually comes from federal guidelines. Um, so Head Start is a program that um, is federally regulated but locally implemented. Um, so those federal guidelines um, really are just used to guide how the local programs um, offer the meals um, and set their menus. Okay. Um, but children that attend for the full day receive up to two-thirds of the recommended daily allowance. Um, so they're provided with um, 
two meals and a snack if they attend full day. Um, so they're actually receiving more, um, more calories from being in the program. Um, so it's one of the situations where the, although they attend longer and they receive more calories from in the program, being there longer restricts the total number of calories. So it's pretty easy to see then how uh, Head Start has this educational enrichment possibility that that has been studied now, you know, every way till Sunday, and it seems to have a good impact from what I can tell. Um, and now there's this nutritional enrichment possibility that exists as well, and that's what you're interested yes. in studying. Okay. So tell us about your data. Um, so in order to, to look at this question, one of the things that we did is we um, were able to get administrative data from a program in Michigan um, that operates Head Start centers uh, across a couple of counties. Um, and it's a data set that includes information about um, the height and weight of children that's measured uh, at the beginning of the year and the end of the year. Um, it includes information about the Head Start program. Um, it also includes information that parents fill out on the application form prior to attending Head Start, which is actually really important um, to get information about children before they attend rather than during the program or, or after they attend um, because some of that information could actually be influenced by their participation. Okay. Um, so it's a, it's a rich data set that has lots of information about these children and it's also over a, a period of five academic years. Um, okay. We're generally estimating the impact um, that occurs between the, that occurs over one academic year. Um, between a half a day attendance versus full day attendance. Yes. Right. Um, so the measures are the beginning of the fall is the beginning of the year measurement and then there's end of the year measurements from the end of the spring. Okay. Um, and just first, I, I think the best sense of what the estimates are actually comes from the, the raw data. So basically what happens is that in this program, 17% um, of the children enter into the program uh, as obese children. Uh, regardless of whether or not they're in full day or half day. Um, what happens is that um, the half day children, the prevalence of obesity falls from 17% to 16. The prevalence of obesity for full day children falls from 17 down to 12. So actually find a larger decrease um, for full day children. So first, one thing that's really interesting is that there's a decrease in, in the prevalence of obesity for all children. And that's, um, that's a significant decrease. Not just yes. statistically significant, but you think of a 5% prevalence difference for uh, an issue like that. That's pretty significant. Especially because if, if you think about um, what you would expect happening if children were not in the program, um, given that obesity has been rising over time and rises with age, you'd expect that to increase instead of decrease. Right. So actually that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to say what would, what would be the rate of obesity if the children that did attend full day under the hypothetical example that they actually didn't attend the program. Right. And, and so we try to actually estimate that. Okay. Do you um, have some numbers you could share with us on that? Sure. What we find is, is we actually predict that the um, estimate would actually have risen up to about 26%. Um, wow. So it, it would have risen by quite a bit. And the reason for that is th the way they determine who attends full day compared to half day 
is that given that your uh, parents or, or mother works full time, uh, it's the most disadvantaged of those children that, that are um, admitted into the full day program. So um, we're actually predicting that the uh, prevalence of obesity would have risen from 17 to 26, but instead we find that it falls to 12%. So okay. we find a 14 percentage point change um, from attending a full day Head Start. Um, I mean, that, that borders on being a stunning finding and, and very potentially important. So just to, to review the numbers, children in this demographic group, if, if they didn't experience Head Start at all, would be expected to go from a baseline of 17 percent obesity up to 26 percent prevalence of obesity. But if Head Start gets introduced, for the half-day children, it would be reduced to 17%, and for full-day children, down to 12%. Do I have the numbers correct? Um, well, well, so I guess we're really focused on for full-day children, that if the full-day children did not go into... Um, oh, so it's that particular demographic. Yes, yeah, so, so we're actually... Because those are the most disadvantaged children. Right? We're, we're focused more on just children once they're within Head Start. Okay. Um, and, and looking at the impact of the... the the recent expansions. Okay. Um, you know, I was, um, you've answered this question to some extent already, but I think I'll pose it just to make sure, sure. I'm clear. Um, I was going to ask whether there were selection factors who, who gets selected to go into the full day program that might help explain some of your results, some of the beneficial results that you're reporting, but it sounds like the selection would work against having a positive result because the most disadvantaged children get selected for the full day program. So Head Start's one of uh, a, a program that's slightly different in what you may commonly think of as, as selection concerns because you don't have the situation where uh, administrators are cream skimming and taking the children who are going to experience the most gains. Mm -hmm. um, so it's actually the opposite. And, and this comes from uh, federal guidelines that um, it make it so that the most disadvantaged children are selected in. And what they do is they have a checklist that um, they, they basically assign points to certain categories. Um, and uh, what's considered a more disadvantaged categories given more points. Um, so that, uh, for example, um, you're more likely to be admitted into full day if you have one parent instead of two, or if you're a foster child uh, instead of having one parent. Okay. Um, you are more likely to be admitted um, if um, you are a child in a household that uh, has an abusive uh, situation, um, if it is a household with a chronically ill parent. Uh, so, so basically households that are uh, more disadvantaged than other households that whereas um, it's children, so, so I guess these are all considerations that, that um, take place given that the parents are full-time work. Are employed. So this is a group of kids struggling against high odds. Yes. Okay. I know a lot of people are suspicious about government programs, feeling that there's a lot of waste. But when you take a program like Head Start and think about the impressive educational gains that kids experience, now you're talking about remarkable health gains. Boy, it sure is an argument for these kind of programs, isn't it? 
I, I think what it shows is that um, providing these opportunities can lead to um, comprehensive benefits. Um, and I, I think that um, especially these, these programs that um, are um, targeted towards children who um, are, have a more disadvantaged family background, um, giving them a broader opportunity uh, through comprehensive programs, it, it can lead to a variety of, uh, of benefits. Um, and I think it shows that, that this program, um, you know, I, it, one of the things that, that I, I think is an important takeaway message of a lot of the research that we've been doing is that um, al although policymakers have generally focused on the education outcomes, is that this is a program that can lead to a variety of benefits. Um, and, and an additional one that people haven't tended to focus on, at least, is uh, nutrition and obesity. Very important results. I want to make sure we have time to talk uh, about your sure. another interest of yours, and that is the issue of tax, taxes on foods. Now, the, the short history of the interest in taxes on foods, it doesn't go back all that many years, was uh, for people to begin thinking about whether food taxes could be used to shift consumption of the population away from some of the unhealthier foods, let's say soft drinks and fast foods, into some more healthy categories. And then, of course, taxes also have the possibility of generating revenue. Um, and I know in a paper we wrote some time ago, uh, the estimate was that if you did a very small tax, just a penny a can on soft drinks, you could raise a billion and a half dollars nationally to do nutrition programs, and you could do a lot with that amount of money. So, um, but until recently, economists haven't paid attention to that. I mean, we were doing it, but sort of in an amateurish way because my background's not economics. But now you started to devote some expert attention to the issue. So tell me about your interest in it and where that's taking you. So what we've been interested in is trying to get a sense of how does uh, these small taxes influence consumption? And then what is the resulting impact on um, weight and body mass index? Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're looking at it in a couple of different ways. One, we have focused on adults. Um, and at least the preliminary results we have so far have, have suggested that, um, that these small taxes are leading to um, small uh, decreases in, in body mass index, which I think is actually pretty interesting given that these are small taxes that, that are um, influencing, uh, seem to be influencing um, consumption and body mass index. What we're doing is we're actually taking that project further and we're focusing on children and adolescents. Um, and we're going to look directly at um, different measures of consumption to see um, how these taxes do influence the uh, soda consumption of, of children, um, and then also to look at uh, their body mass index. Um, and so we're just interested in, as states are changing these um, soft drink taxes, well, what is the, the impact of these taxes? Now, a number of states have such taxes. And my understanding, uh, and I'm not sure if this is still the case, maybe you can tell me, is that the taxes were not put in in any case in order to um, change nutrition, but they were put in just as a means of raising revenue for the state. 
um, but they could have the consequence of changing nutrition. But and I think but, that's primarily been the case, um, a- at least up through recently. Okay. Um, people have started suggesting uh, taxes to uh, um, to create public health benefits. Okay. That, um, well, that that could introduce a whole other conceptual approach to this that I think would be very interesting and might very well help the public sign on to the concept of taxes if they feel that they're going to see some health benefit rather than the money just goes into the state coffers. Um, sure. Let me ask a question about the, how economists think about something like taxes. Now, of course, tax, no, nobody wants more taxes, so there's that issue. And, and I also understand that there are some economists that feel pretty strongly that you don't get, get in and interfere with the free market. And so at what point, uh, how, how do economists decide when you pull a trigger on something like this? Under what conditions does it make sense to start to change economic policy, to change the price of some good in order to change the consumption habits of it? Well, I think there's a, a, a few things that you would want to focus on. One would be, um, as, as far as trying to influence a good, what would be the externalities that are generated by consumption of that good. Okay, now you um, need to explain the concept, ex- what externalities are. So the idea with, um, is, so an externality is basically an, an action generated by an individual that has consequences for others. Um, so the idea is that um, excess soda can, or, uh, Excess soda consumption would have, and could potentially have externalities um, if it leads to excess medical expenditures okay. that um, others are paying for through um, higher insurance premiums, through um, government-provided insurance programs. Okay. Um, would another example of externalities be when people smoke cigarettes? The fact that other people who are exposed to the smoke and get sick from it as well. Certainly, and secondhand smoke is, <coughs> you know, a great example. Okay. Um, but I think there's a, a few other things that you would want to consider, not just the externalities, but also um, you want to think about the transactions cost. Um, and as far as taxes on types of food, I think one of the things that's important is um, generally government can't react as quickly as the science. So it, it's taxes on types of food would have to be very, very carefully thought of or thought about so that it wasn't the case that um, it would encourage um, use of other types of ingredients or foods that could have similarly negative uh, impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, taxing types of ingredients may not lead to the benefits that you would hope to achieve if there are similar substitutes. So, for example, taxing high fructose corn syrup may not have the anticipated benefits if the manufacturers switch to an alternative. Yes. Um, and so then it would be the case where the, the the taxes would be implemented but not have the public health benefits and could, uh, could actually have less revenue generated than expected as well if individuals can just easily switch. Okay. Um, so do you think the case can be made that um, something like soft drink consumption produces 
sufficient externalities to justify economic intervention? I think as far as, um, well, f first I think that um, there is some research out there that that suggests that could be the case, but I think that that actually this is a, an area of research that, that a, a lot more should occur okay. Um, okay. to actually better get a sense of um, what types of externalities might be occurring uh, when they occur. Okay. Um, and um, so, so I, I think that, that right now, I think that it's actually a really interesting period for trying to understand this because I, I feel like the research generally is at um, a early stage in, in actually understanding um, the uh, obesity epidemic and um, a lot of these issues. Okay. Um, you said that um, your knowledge of the, <clears throat> the data on this is that small taxes on something like soft drinks produce small changes in consumption. Does it follow that large taxes would produce a large change in consumption? It's tough to really say. Um, and so one of the reasons why it is difficult is there aren't large taxes in place now. Um, so then what you're doing is you're, you're, um, you're making assumptions outside of uh, um, what's known. Okay. Uh, so it, it could be the case, but um, it depends on how individuals' consumption um, does it vary linearly with the taxes? Um, and and it's, I, I think it's really interesting and important to know, um, but it's really difficult to, to get a sense of that now. Okay. So um, we don't know that if you did a 2% tax versus a 4% tax that you get twice the change from the 4% tax because nobody has done the large taxes to really yep. make that declaration. Now, now it could be possible that you could make inference about that based on um, what we know about cigarette taxes. Mm -hmm. um, so assuming that the goods are similar and people respond similarly, um, then you could make inference about large taxes. But as far as specifically knowing the impact of large taxes, there's just not a lot, um, no large taxes in action. You know, it's interesting for me to think about how the the uh, climate has changed with respect to this issue because I think when the first first people started writing about this in the maybe the early 1990s, um, there was a good bit of consternation that followed from even the idea. Um, you know, the conservative talk show hosts like Rush Limbaugh were pretty antagonistic to the idea of food taxes, as you might guess. But uh, also people were very suspicious about even the idea and the public opinion polling that was done back then, which wasn't very extensive, suggested that, that you know, maybe 25 or 30 percent of people were in favor of the idea. But those poll questions have been repeated over the years, and the number of people who support the concept of food taxes has gone up and up and up. And the most recent polls uh, that I've seen where you ask people would they support a tax if the revenue were earmarked for some good cause, particularly nutrition programs for children, that you get pretty high numbers of people supporting the idea. So I agree with your premise that it's an interesting time to study this because a couple of things have come together. 
and let see if you agree with this. One is that people are very concerned about the negative impact of the food environment on children because mm -hmm. of the high rates of obesity. Second is people are warming up to the idea of taxes. And then third is entire countries have considered the possibility of using taxes like this. I know Ireland and Australia in particular have talked about it, and I think there's some discussion about it elsewhere in the world. So it seems like there's a, a desperate need for science on this so that we'd really know exactly what the impact is going to be. Would, does that yeah, make sense I, to you? I, I would agree. Okay. Um, and, you know, thank goodness economists are now paying attention to this, and, and people with a background like yours are starting to collect data. Thanks. I think that'll be very valuable. Well, I'd like to thank our guest today, David Friswald, currently at the University of Michigan as a Robert Wood Johnson Scholar in Health Policy Research and soon to join the faculty in economics at em Emory University. Uh, David, thanks very much for your contributions today. Oh, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed being here. And again, uh, thank you for joining us today. As I mentioned, this is a, a webcast put together by the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. And you can visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org to find a, um, an access to this podcast, but also to many others that we've done on food policy and obesity-related issues. Thank you.